Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. We have an interesting program for you. We'll go from the depths of the oceans to outer space. A listener asked, could we live underwater? Is there a possibility of a self-contained city? From air, to power, to food, it could be a pricey endeavor. There is, however, a case study. In the underwater lodge near Key Largo, you can get pizzas delivered, but those are very rare treats you know, and very expensive. We'll talk to an expert who says the idea may get sunk before it becomes a reality, but that isn't stopping a Japanese company. Plus, a new space race is in the works, and this time, you can be part of it. Entering the capsule is actually as simple as boarding an airplane. You walk in on your street clothes and uh, grab a glass of champagne and enjoy the ride. That's all next on Whether or Not. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station, Seven News. Welcome back. It's been a staple of Hollywood for many years. The temptation to possibly live underwater is great. It could provide easy aqua farming and possibly relieve population congestion on land. But an expert on the subject says the idea may be just for science fiction. Okay, my name is Neptune Srimal. So at least by name, I am the appropriate person to talk about oceans. <laughs> and I'm a professor in the Florida International University in the Earth and Environment Department, and I teach physical geology, oceanography, environment-related subjects in FIU. Perfect. Well, then, uh, you are the perfect person for us to talk to. We had a uh, listener of our podcast not too long ago send me an email wanting to know if we could live underwater. And, and let's begin with, how could we live underwater? Well... The first question is, what do you mean by living underwater? I mean, people who go down in submarine, they also live underwater. True. Or someone like Little Mermaid, she also lives underwater. True. So, so would you be living under a structure or would you be and not venture out at all? Or you would be living in a structure underwater, but would be venturing out at depth and doing work there? Well, I think the uh, I, I think the question really led more to would we be able to live in a structure underwater, um, maybe with the possibility of doing some excursions here and there for farming or scientific work, but just the idea of an underwater city, how, how would that even come to be? Okay, uh, first thing we have to understand that there are lots of challenges of living underwater or living in and underwater habitat, the way we call it. Although in this case, habitat means a structure and the area just around it, you know, not the wider area around the, on the ocean floor. So the challenges are several. First thing is, of course, we need a breathing gas. I mean, we need air to survive, but that's only one of the problems. Uh, underwater, the pressure is very high. 
for every 30 feet or so, every 10 meters, the pressure goes up by one atmosphere. So if you're thinking of working at 100 meters depth, you'll be working in a situation where the pressure is 10 times the atmospheric pressure, which means the pressure of gas of the dome under which you'll be living, the pressure of the breathing gas, the ambient pressure as we call it, will also be 10 times that of the atmosphere. Hmm. So you will be breathing in a very gas under very high pressure with high concentration, more dense. So, and that creates a lot of physiological problem. That's one of the problems. Then, you know, if you're planning to live underwater for extended periods, even in a structure, you need a life support system. That's not only the breathing gas, you have, need to have a gas storage. You need to have a system for filtering the gas, for recovering part of it, for scrubbing it. You need boosters, you need compressors, and you need to, to have a system where everything works perfectly. Because if anything breaks down 500 feet underwater, that's, that's a real major problem. But apart from that, you need food there. It's very difficult to cook underwater. I mean, till now in the all most of the underwater labs, people just take eat canned foods. Although in Aquarius or in the underwater lodge near Key Largo, you can get pizzas delivered, but those are very rare treats, you know, I mean, and very expensive. So, but but if you want to cook something underwater, you need that the smell will be, you know, your dome will be full of the smell. Sure. And it's, uh, it's very difficult to get rid of that. So, so that's, that's a problem too. Firefighting. I mean, you cannot take a hose and fight a fire in an underwater dome. Right. So you need to have a special firefighting system. Then there are lots of ambient conditions, like you need uh, the temperature. The ocean floor, you know, below about a few hundred meters is at a constant temperature between three and four degrees Celsius. You know, that's very close to the freezing temperature. So you have to keep that area warm. When you go out of the dome to do any kind of excursions, I mean, as we call it, to do some, to study the ocean, um, it will be extremely cold. And as we will discuss, we might discuss the special gas that we breathe in, uh, in, in that, uh, you know, the deeper part of the, uh, our dives, they contain helium. And so first we have to warm up the gas that we are breathing in, and then we have to warm up the suit that we are in. So you need a hot water supply. So all kinds of, and on shore you need a big support system too. So these are the challenges and people have tried to meet it in different ways. Uh, the a system can be, it can be connected with the shoreline with uh, you know plumbing with pipes that brings in uh, hot water and and breathing air or it can be at a shallow depth and totally open to the air you know most of the underwater restaurants work like that so the pressure in, inside is just like our atmospheric pressure and there's a uh, you know basically open hatch to to air or you can have a semi submersible system where a part of it's over water and a large part of it is underwater. So you can both live over water and underwater. You can have a autonomous system, which has, which produces its own energy, scrubs its air, and can also you know, move 
at least in a vertical uh, direction, it can move up and down if needed. So we have all, and, and of course, there's a, this underwater labs like the Aquarius near Key Largo, but those are all cramped quarters for scientists to work in. Those are not really like a city where people can work and live. So professor, as we look ahead into the future, and there are so many um, uh, folks who suggest that we may have to eventually one day venture out into the seas and live there because of overpopulation. What would be the most um, uh, easiest to do, the most practical thing to do as far as taking humanity uh, out into the ocean? Well, two things. I personally believe that very soon our problem would be less population, not overpopulation. If you look at all the developed countries, if you look at the US, if you look at Canada, if you look at Japan, if you look at uh, European Union, look at China, I mean, that, that, that is the maximum number of people. Even in India, I mean, they are very uh, close to zero population growth. So a large, for a large part of the world's population, the major problem would be how to have more babies, not overpopulation. So, so that's one. But again, theoretically, if we want to look at it, how we can do it, it has to be very close to the shoreline. And of course, with the sea level rising, you know, we'll, we'll have a lot of area very close to the shoreline at very shallow depth. Sure. So it has to be on the continental shelf. And uh, if it is shallow depth, um, we, can, uh, we can have some light if it is in the lighted part of the ocean, which means, you know, I mean, below 10 meters, we have very little light actually. And below 200 meters, only 1% or below 150 meters, only 1% of incident light travels to that depth. So that's a twilight zone. Uh, photosynthesis is not possible at that depth. So, so if we want to do any kind of underwater farming, it has to be, uh, you know, it has to be very shallow depth. And there have been plans, there have been several plans of creating underwater cities. Right now, the one that's caught people's attention was one that was proposed by a Japanese farm, a Japanese construction farm named the Shimizu Corporation. And they had this conceptual of what they call an ocean spiral. So it'll be like a huge spiral that goes from the surface all the way to a depth of two to 3,000 meters, two to three kilometers. Wow. But mind you, even that would not reach the bottom of the ocean. I mean, that can reach what we call the continental slope, not the main, not the abyssal plain, not the main ocean. All right. Floor. And in their concept, they'll have a big uh, orb, like a big ball on the top, with about half a kilometer, 500 meter diameter, which is about 1500 feet diameter. Wow. That will be above the water or uh, at least partly above the water. And that will be the living quarter. And around the orb, all around it, they'll have a breakwater that will stop the waves from hitting mm -hmm. uh, this orb. And of course they, they try to sell their idea. They say, okay, you know, it will be a much nicer living condition because we'll have more oxygen there. So it will be healthier, which is debatable. Um, 
the temper should be controlled. And of course, I mean, I, I think those are the only two selling points there. And of course, you live in the ocean. You can see fish out of your windows, perhaps. Now, there have been some other proposals, too, not so much as living underwater, but obviously living on the water, which is like building these huge artificial islands. And, yeah. and the, the plus there was that they could be moved out of harm's way if a hurricane was coming. Uh, but it turns out that it may be more for the extreme wealthy to be able to afford that than to be an actual uh, thing that could be used by anybody. What have you heard or have you read anything regarding these uh, ship cities? Uh, sometimes back, I heard something from, again, in the Tokyo, I think, they have been reclaiming part of the, they have been uh, planning to build a platform on the ocean on which they'll have houses. But think of it, look at uh, the Gulf state. I think it was Dubai, right? Uh, they created islands in their offshore areas, the Palm Island, the island shaped like Palm That's and build right. houses there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, possibly that would be easier thing to do than, than making a floating island just to make it safe from hurricane, which might, you know, uh, occur once in many years. Living in Miami, we know it's much easier to make our houses stronger so that they can withstand Category 5 hurricanes. We have done that, right? See, now you're preaching to the choir because that's what I've always said all along, that we should definitely uh, improve our situation on land. Professor, thank you so much today. You've helped us out a lot. I didn't want to take up any more of your time, but this is an interesting subject, and I'm glad you took the uh, time today to help answer that question to one of our listeners. Thank you so much. It's, it's my pleasure. Coming up next, the oceans may be off limits for the time being, but space is opening up. We'll cover that when weather or not returns. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. Welcome back. You've seen the billionaires touch the upper limits of the atmosphere. Soon, you'll be able to as well. Meteorologist Brent Cameron takes off with this story. Hi, everyone. It's Brent Cameron. And in case you haven't noticed, there is a new space race happening these days. More people are taking flight to the outer edges of Earth than ever before. There are companies out there like Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin and my new favorite, Space Perspective, right here in Florida. All of them are getting non-astronauts out into space. And joining me to talk about this, I sure appreciate uh, Chief Marketing Officer Sandy Height with Space Perspective. Thanks, Sandy, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Right off the bat, let me ask you, how is Space Perspective, your company, different from what we've seen so far on our television screens with people like uh, companies too, like uh, Richard Branson's and Jeff Bezos going up into space? Well, I would say the most important thing based on what you've seen is that we do not speed away from Earth in a rocket at high velocity. Mm -hmm. Rather, we offer a gentle yet thrilling six-hour journey that can be savored with family and friends. Our experience is what we call the world's first luxury spaceflight experience 
because our explorers go up in a pressurized capsule called Spaceship Neptune, and it is propelled by a space balloon that is the size of a football field. Wow. So there are no G-forces in play, no special physical requirements or training needed. You mentioned the luxury aspect of it. In looking at the pictures from your website at spaceperspective.com, it does. It looks to me like a big luxury box floating up in the sky. And how long would uh, someone experience that, that, that actual flight? It is a six hour journey, which is again, very different from the rockets where, which are about 11 minute experience. Um, so we, we traveled to 100,000 feet, which is in the last 1% of the earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So what happens is at sunrise, we gently rise for two hours. We float at the apogee for two hours and then descend for two hours, gently splashing down in the ocean. Oh. And the reason we call it a luxury experience is because we have luxuriously comfortable seats, huge windows offering a 360 degree view where somebody can see 450 miles. And our capsule has Wi-Fi, a bar and a bathroom. Fantastic. And how many people can uh, fit on one flight? We hold eight passengers plus a captain and entering the capsule is actually as simple as boarding an airplane. You walk in on your street clothes and uh, grab a glass of champagne and enjoy the ride. Yeah, it really sounds like a truly unique experience. Now you said 100,000 um, feet up in the air. What breathing issues might that challenge? Will there be the need for extra oxygen? No, not at all, because it's a completely pressurized capsule, just like an airplane. And what about um, space suits? Uh, do, does everybody suit up in one of those suits that we see so often when uh, the rockets go off? We do not need any space suits. Uh, we, people can walk in and wear whatever they wish, but people have been asking us for things like, can I have a special bag or can, do I have a special <laughs> jacket that I can wear? So I know that we're going to be designing some really cool things for people to wear if they want to. What kind of demand are you seeing so far? Well, funny you should ask about the demand because we are actually the only uh, spaceflight company where you can reserve your ticket to space online. And um, we are already sold out for our first year. So we wow. expect to take uh, humans up into space uh, starting in late 2024. So the first year is already sold out. You can secure your seat on spaceperspective.com with just a $1,000 refundable deposit. Earlier years, like year two and three, do require a larger deposit, but those are extremely limited right now. So if anybody wants to go up sooner, then they can just contact us on the website and one of our team members will call them to see about getting them on an earlier flight. So what is the cost? Oh, I'm happy to tell you the cost. It's $125,000 a person per seat. And it's actually seems like a fairly good deal for a six hour experience when the, uh, the rocket experiences that are going up right now are, are in the range of $400,000 and higher and that's for about an 11 minute experience. And I think it's appropriate that Space Perspective is located right here in Florida at 
such an iconic launching site that we all know. Yes, we are located at Kennedy Space Center and we're thrilled to be doing our initial work right from here. And we certainly will be launching many of our flights from Kennedy Space Center, but eventually we will be launching them from all over the world. Now, Sandy, I'm a TV meteorologist and making forecasts and predictions is what I do basically all the time. But I'd like to ask you about your projection, if you will. How is this going to take off in, say, 10, 20, 30 years? What, what do you think the future is of space travel and exploration like this? We think it's very exciting and that it's going to take off. It already has. And I think all of the interest in the research and the resources that are going towards this right now is going mm -hmm. to make this even happen more quickly for regular human beings. Now, we, we talked about going up and uh, we talked about the length of time, the six hours. And I can only just imagine on daydream about some of the views there. What about coming down? And, and I guess it's landing in the water, as I understand. Yes, yeah, so it, it basically goes up and down at about 17 miles an hour, 12 to 17 miles an hour, which is about what you would do if you're cycling. Mm -hmm. And so the, the splash in the ocean is very gentle and the capsule is picked up by the recovery ship. Now at this point you've been doing, I assume lots of testing and training and preparation. Is that what it's been all about prior to these first commercial flights? Absolutely, yes. In fact, if you go to our website, you'll see a whole section that talks about our recent test flight, which happened in June of 2021. And we will do a lot of testing before our first commercial flight. In fact, we can do a lot of testing because we do not require uh, a captain or a pilot in our test flights. Sandy, now that you have our heads in the clouds, so to speak. What Are there any other insights that you'd like to share with us? I think it's the most important insight, actually. Um, for so many years, only astronauts have been able to have that profound experience, which is called the overview effect, which is seeing Earth from the darkness of space. And astronauts have said, I went to space to discover the moon, and what I discovered was Earth. Mm. So... I kind of want to leave you with this. Uh, imagine a world where millions of people have had the life-altering experience of seeing Earth in space. We will deliver a life-changing experience to people across the world, and perhaps all of us realize that we are part of a human family sharing this remarkable planet. That's beautiful, and uh, it's really an exciting thing, and I thank you for your your time to tell us a little bit about it. Once again, it's Chief Marketing Officer Sandy Height. Sandy, thanks a lot. And uh, good luck with the future with space perspective. It sounds like it's a, a very exciting one. It is. And we hope to see all of you on board and especially you, Brent. <laughs> sounds good. I'll, I'll look into booking my flight. Thanks, okay. Sandy. Thank you, Brent. Next week on Whether or Not, it's our insect issue. Bees are waving the white flag they need our help to save them. Can a new non-chemical treatment help battle a parasite killing honeybees? Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez with the buzz on this story. And a mosquito versus mosquito solution to a stinging problem. The Florida Keys working on stopping the spread of diseases by releasing more mosquitoes into the wild. 
I've got the full itch on these very specific mosquitoes down in the Florida Keys. That's coming up. Indeed, Erica Delgado will have that story on our next edition, which drops September 21st. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7weather and, of course, live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.